Well, good morning, church. They really did get me, the first service. And as I said in the first service, it may look like I'm in charge around here. <laughs> I don't let that fool you. I had no idea that was coming. There is a history of that song for me, and I won't get into it now. I did put it in the epistle once, way back, and you can maybe find that. But anyway, I don't want to spend down that rabbit hole right now, but it was a beautiful morning. And you know, our time this morning with singing those songs, you know, I thought, you know, we should have had the overhead projectors too, right? And <laughs> projecting them up there. Some of you young ones are going, what's an overhead projector? But that's how we used to sing, off, off the screen with the overhead projectors, right? But it brought me back to those days. And it brought me back to a particular situation, true story, situation in the early days of my pastoral ministry. It was in the 90s. I was in my 30s. And I, with my uh, colleague, uh, were pastoring a church in Portland, Maine. Now, I, I tell you up front, this was not one of my finer moments, Okay. In those days, as part of the service each week, there was special music. And for you young uns, you may not know what that is either, but special music is when a soloist or a duet or a trio or, or some form of that would come and, and sing as part of the order of worship to us. And um, some churches continue to do that, and, and that's fine. That's not my point. Anyway, the special music was coordinated with me to line up with the direction of the sermon. And on this one occasion, we were all set to go for the coming Sunday when I received a call on that Thursday from the woman who was scheduled to sing. And she said to me, Pastor, I don't think I can sing special music this Sunday. And so I asked her why. And she said, well, I can't sing this Sunday because my cat died. Now, being the compassionate, sensitive pastor that I am, when she gave me that reason she could not sing, I chuckled. I told you, not one of my finer moments. In all fairness to me, she loved to joke around, but this time she wasn't joking. She said it again. I can't sing special music this week. Sing special music this week. I'm afraid I won't get through it. And And the funny part to me was the song she was to sing was Imagine Me Without You. Now, the song wasn't about a cat. And it's no secret that I'm not a cat lover, but this made very little sense to me. You lose a cat, you move on, certainly from Thursday to Sunday. All right. Pull the switch to seriousness. This past Friday, this past Friday, our family had to put down the only dog we have ever had and had him for the last nine years. I might be a little more compassionate now. Full disclosure. I have never had to do this before, and it was devastating. The three of us stood outside of the animal hospital in the parking lot and and just embraced each other, and we wept. We wept. And for those of you who have had to say goodbye to a pet, you, you, you get that. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, the elders have been reading through a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church, At the beginning of each of our meetings, we discuss one chapter in the book. This past month was on embracing, grieving, and loss. Now, a loss can be anything from a death of a loved one, and I'm not minimizing this by by going to secondary losses, and we've had plenty of those in our church. 
Um, it could be that. It could also secondary losses, if we can call them that. It could be a loss of a dream. It could be loss of an ambition that wasn't fulfilled. It could be loss of a possession. It could be loss of a, of a pet. It could be loss of a job. It could be loss of some, you know, a body's not doing what it used to do. A loss can be someone uh, uh, moving away. It can be a child going off to college. It can even be a good thing, like your child getting married. That's still a loss. We feel that as, as a parent. It's an absence of something or someone once loved, and there's just kind of this ache in your heart. There's an emptiness there. There's a void in your life. And, 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 and you know, church, in the Christian community, we don't always grieve well. We don't. We give pat answers. We chuckle when someone tells us something happened like me. We don't do a good job expressing how we feel in those times. And this is one reason that I appreciate the letter Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He shares openly how he feels about them. And in today's passage, we see Paul working through his sadness and wanting to be with this church in Thessalonica while being many miles away in Corinth writing the letter. He is, in essence, grieving the loss of being physically present with them. That's no small thing. He misses them. He wishes he could be with them. And his inability to be present with him causes him some angst. Well, if you're not there, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's towards the back of your Bibles. I encourage you to follow along with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 and take on the first five verses of chapter 3 as we continue in, in, in this letter to the church in Thessalonica on the, on the subject of vital signs. Now, these are God's words to us. Now, I remind you, as you're turning, I remind you that Paul and his two companions, Silas and Timothy, planted a church in Thessalonica. They were with this church for at least three weeks. Now, probably, it was more like a month or two until they were forced out of town. And you might recall, they were forced out by some unbelieving Jews who were fueled by jealousy. And what we will see this morning in Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5, is a window into the emotions of a man and his team who are physically separated from the church in Thessalonica. Things don't go Paul's way here. But what we see in this section is the relentless commitment that he had to the church and Thessalonica, even when he was physically separated from them. How do we see that relentless commitment? I'll give you three statements this morning, serving as my outline. Three statements. The first statement is, out of sight, but not out of mind. Out of sight, but not out of mind. As we come to verse 17 of chapter 2, we once again see the tender side of a tough man, as we saw a few weeks ago. All right, look at me, verse 17, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought. In other words, it wasn't out of sight, out of mind. Now, this was cause for me to really take a step back and ask some very hard questions. How well do you do with people you haven't seen in a while? 
Frankly, I'm not very good at it. They really can become out of sight, out of mind for me. I think it's a a defense mechanism that I use because I don't want to feel the pain of the loss. I mean, they're in my thoughts, and I even pray for them from time to time. But to reach out to them and simply say, you know, I'm thinking of you, that might go a long way. I had a dear couple uh, whom I hadn't seen in years I was, uh, when I was in, in Portland, and I saw them one other time since. They, they reached out to me this past week because they were thinking of me. It meant a lot. Now, of course, we cannot act on the thought of someone else each and every time. We'll go bonkers. But likely, we can express our care for others better than we do. Those we once had in our lives, but now absent from us for one reason or another, that's a loss. Well, the verse continues. We hear him express this, middle of verse 17. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again. But Satan stopped us. Now, as already mentioned, Paul and his team weren't able to stick around in Thessalonica nearly as long as they wanted to. They were thrown out of town and to express how they wished to have stayed with them but couldn't, Paul describes it in the two words in the NIV, torn away. Torn away. It expresses their sadness in having to leave the city and to leave the people he loved. Now, the phrase uh, torn away um, is one word in the original, and it literally means orphaned. Now, some translations you might have in front of you, they say, it says orphaned. That's, that's a good, accurate translation. The separation was so painful to Paul that it's like a child being stripped away from his parents, orphaned. Now, some of you parents have experienced uh, just dropping off your child uh, to the church nursery, right? Or maybe to preschool. That little one's dropped off. They're they're screaming. They're holding out their precious hands to you as you try to sneak away, right? Well, the pain of that child being left by the parents is the pain of Paul's soul. It practically killed him to leave. And And since being forced to leave the city, Paul and his team wanted to return to them. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. He communicates to them his longing to see them. And it isn't as if he and his team didn't try. They did try. But they were unable to return to be with them, which Paul identifies as the work of Satan himself. Satan stopped us, he says. And you might ask, how did Satan stop Paul's plans? We aren't told. What do we make of this stoppage here being chalked up to Satan. I mean, I mean, is Satan behind all obstructions? When something doesn't go our way, is he to blame? Much of my early ministry in, in the late 80s and early 90s was trying to correct some misunderstanding of Satan and the work of demons. Peretti and many others shaped people's thinking on the subject. Novels and and many other books, uh, too many to even count, had been written about Satan and his demons, labeled and titled Spiritual Warfare. Now, as helpful as they might have been in creating a greater awareness of the devil's activity, in equal proportion, perhaps even worse, 
There's a lot of uh, sensationalism that came out of that. And even questionable teaching that has influenced our understanding of Satan and his demons. Spiritual warfare. Many have built their theology around those sources. Uh Uh-uh. Here. Now, before you accuse me of not thinking Satan's alive and well, hear me, Satan is alive and well. And he does hope to hinder the progress of God's work being done. He is a real enemy. But we, so, we, so we mustn't deny his existence. But neither should we swing the pendulum the other direction to having a preoccupation with the devil and his demons. In other words, we are not to find Satan under every rock, so to speak. Kind of like the, the cartoon that, that I saw. And mom and, and her son were sitting at the dinner table. And they were about to ask the blessing on the food. And then you have the caption of the mom speaking to her son. And she says to her son in this caption, No dear, we wouldn't want to ask God's blessing on the work of the devil. But Brussels sprouts aren't the work of the devil. <laughs> well, it may not be the work of the devil. But in my opinion, it is the result of the fall. <laughs> In my opinion. <laughs> if we, but here, here's the point. If we attribute every flat tire, every toothache, every rained out cookout, every mishap during the day, every problem we encounter to demons, that we may be giving Satan more credit than his due. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our human race can fall about the devils. He means Satan and his demons. There's two opposite equal errors that we can fall. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, I opinion, that's what happened a lot in the late 80s, early 90s. See, what we must remember, church, is that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Let's get that one right. We may wonder, why in the world would God ever allow Satan to get in the way of progress to hinder what we desire to do for the Lord? Well, it goes beyond really the scope of my purposes this morning to to kind of work that out. But suffice it to say, Satan and God are not co-equals. They're not. God remains sovereign over even evil plans. And even though Satan may be given permission to slow things down, he can never thwart God from carrying out his purposes. God's work may be stalled, but never stopped. For we know this, God's purposes will be fulfilled no matter what opposition may come against it. And so whatever God may allow Satan to move about on the short leash... God will prove that he is the almighty, sovereign God and will get all the glory in the end. Absolutely. But Paul here, under the superintending of God, unequivocally says that Satan got in the way of his plans. And we'll see in a bit, Paul doesn't allow Satan to totally spoil his intentions. All right, so let me give you a second statement this morning about this relentless commitment. Second statement, it's it's all about the people. It's all about the people. There was this man who was hired to drive a city bus, and he was given this bus schedule with all his stops and the time it should take him to bring all the passengers back to the station. On his first day, 
he managed to complete his route and return to the station at the prescribed time. Matter of fact, earlier than could ever be expected. But without any passengers. When asked why he didn't have any passengers on his bus, he admitted, I never stopped to pick them up. And why didn't you stop to pick them up, inquired the angry manager. Because, said the rookie bus driver, I would have fallen behind in my schedule. That's convicting. It is. I'm a schedule guy. I love my routines. God constantly shows me. It's all about people. This bus driver lost sight of the purpose of his work. If he has no people, he has no job. It's all about the people. And that was Apostle Paul's perspective. Look at verse 19. It's a new sentence. Verse 19 begins with four, which is an explanation for his persistence, his relentless commitment. Verse 19, follow along with me. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul sees the church and Thessalonica as his hope and joy and crown of boasting before Christ. He restates it there by saying they are his glory and joy, verse 20. Now, he's not saying by this, by the way, that they are just the people, are just kind of another notch in his belt, they're, that they're around simply there to boost his reputation. He doesn't use people to puff up his ego or, or to quiet his insecurities or to help him feel better about himself. That isn't the point. Paul is thankful that the preaching of the gospel has spoken into their lives and is helping to move them forward in their faith. And evidence that his work is not in vain were the people. The source of his joy is that the people he invested in remained faithful even under trying circumstances as we're going to see in a moment. And the church overall was doing well. Their vital signs were good. But Paul calls this church his hope, his glory, his joy. And I had to stop there and go, is that how I view you? Is that how I view people? You're my joy. Is that how we view each other? There used to be another chorus we used to sing, I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God, right? Maybe we're singing, I'm I'm glad I'm part of the family of God, and and thinking as we looked around at others, we were saying, I'm surprised you're part of the family of God. Huh, you're in? Huh. I have to love you? I mean, it's tough. It's tough. You know, relationships are hard. Someone put it this way. He said, relationships are like a walk in the park. Jurassic Park. Yes. That's what it feels like. We say it's all about people. They ought to be our joy. And we go, oh, oh. why? Because people like mango. Some are sweet, some are sour. And it's tough. We have to deal with that. It's all about people. Did you get up this morning and think, I'm going to church because I'm going to be with people. They're my joy. That's who I want to be with, my church family. And are you a source of joy for others? Now, all of us ultimately to find our joy in the Lord, yes. But isn't there to be joy found in each other? As our lives intersect, As we view our time together as more than an individual experience, as more of a community event, a family thing, well, we know in a greater way what Paul is experiencing here. 
There was present joy. He was fearing a future reality. He loved the church so much. He loved the people in that church with such intensity. He longed for that day when they would all enjoy a glorious reunion at the coming of Christ. Because people were his joy. And they had virtues. This is important. They had virtues that would cause him tremendous joy presently and on the day they entered the presence of the Lord. They had those virtues. Now, David Brooks has written in New York Times and in in, in articles about the distinction between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Now, David Brooks makes no claim to be a Christian. But I love what he says here. He says that there are resume virtues. You know the things you put down on your resume. Your degree, your GPA, your, your, your accomplishments, your jobs you've held, titles, certifications, etc., etc., etc. Then, he says, there are eulogy virtues. What people say about you at your funeral. Now, most of the time, people won't talk about your GPA and certifications and even titles at your funeral. They might touch on it, but that's not where they're going to focus. They're going to talk about the kind of person you were. We had the privilege of doing that just recently. And David Brooks then asked this question. Are you living for your resume virtues or eulogy virtues? Are you giving yourself to what you can put down when it comes time for a promotion or to land another job? Or are we giving ourselves to what others will say about us when we are gone? And they may not be the same thing. Now, the friends that I mentioned earlier that reached out to me this past week, well, by the grace of God, I was privileged to have a small part in their growth as as early believers back over 30 years ago. And here they were years later thanking me for that. But you know what? My greatest joy as I got off the the phone with them was that they were still walking with the Lord. That's what did it for me. They live for eulogy virtues, not resume virtues. And they've had a real hard life too. I'm not even going to get into that. If it's been a while since you've affirmed someone and their investment in you, even if it goes back many years, you will bring them great joy to let them know you're still walking with the Lord. Maybe you need to do that. Or maybe that you've turned a corner in your walk. Because it's all about the people. All right, third statement. I need to go on to this. On to plan B. On to plan B. Chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker or God's servant, and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Now notice again, Paul is grieving the absence. And he wants to know how they are doing. And he says here, he can't stand it any longer. And so he reminds them, That was the reason he said Timothy is because he cared for him so much. He felt previously stopped by Satan, so he finds another way, plan B, to reach out to them. Now, here's the tension. Here's the tension that we face when circumstances aren't turning out the way we had hoped. We have a tension there. When do we accept it? And when do we keep pushing through? When is it wrong to stubbornly persist when the door seems closed? And when is it wrong to what feels like giving up? 
When is a closed door a sign that God isn't in it? And when is a closed door simply the evil one preventing us from going forward? (laughs) You got to work that out. There's a tension there because there's signs. We don't know how to read them. There was a flight attendant. Flight attendant spent a week's vacation in the Rockies. And while she was there, she was charmed by this uh, very eligible bachelor who owned and operated a cattle ranch and lived in a log cabin. And at the end of the week, she was wrestling with, she had such a wonderful time, do I go and live with him in the cabin or do I just go on with my job as a flight attendant in New York City? Well, on board on the plane, she's pondering that. Should I go back to the city or should I return to the woods and stay with this man in the cabin for the rest of of my life. Well, to refresh herself, she went into the restroom. She splashed some water in her face. Just then, there was some turbulence. A ding sound went off and a sign uh, lit up in the, in, the, in the restroom that said, please return to the cabin. <laughs> so she did. To the cabin back in the mountains. <laughs> that was her sign. Sign, sign, everywhere, signs. And it's challenging to know how to read them. What are we to make of signs? All right? I don't believe that we are to live our lives trying to read the providence of God, trying to decipher all the signs. The problem with trying to interpret the signs is that we can't see all that God sees. The primary way God speaks is through his word. What we are to do is follow the revealed word of God, trusting him with outcomes. Now, that isn't to say that we don't do the hard work of learning and and getting counsel and weighing the factors and and asking God again and again his good and for his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, Like I said, you gotta kind of have to work that out. But you know, there are many people who are paralyzed and moving forward out of fear because it isn't the will of God. I need to see some signs. I can't do anything. Terrible way to live. God has not done that to you. Got to clear it here. Now we can learn from Paul here. His plan was to visit the church. Out of love and concern for their well-being, he felt it necessary to be present with them. For one reason or another, he was blocked from doing so. All right? See how relentless he is to help them? He wanted to see them. He's sorrowful that he can't. He was hindered by Satan. He goes on to plan B. He sends Timothy. He was so committed to them, he tried plan B. And if someone put it, if plan A doesn't work, then there are 25 more letters. Because <laughs> if there was anything that had Paul's stomach churning, And being distant, separated from the church, it was this concern over their well-being. Might they have drifted from the faith? Perhaps the trials got to them and they gave up. It was this deep love for them that led him to send Timothy to check on them. Now listen, when people check in on you, perhaps um, they haven't seen you in a while, don't take that as they're being nosy and intrusive. I mean, there may be those who do check on you for that reason. But most of the time, it's because they really care. Let them in. Don't go, oh, I'm going to upset you. Checked in on me. What's your problem? You better than me? Don't go there. 
They genuinely want to know how you're doing, or at least that should be the case. And that's what Paul's doing here. He sends Timothy to check in on them, to make sure they're doing okay under the pressure of all the trials. Paul put feet to his concern for them. Back in verse 3, Paul says, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. That's why I sent Timothy. In verse 5, he mentions his concern that the tempter might have tempted them. He says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter, a reference to Satan, might have tempted you, meaning persuaded you to move ever so slightly away from the gospel. And he says, in our efforts, if that was the case, might have been useless. Being honest here, it troubled him to even consider the possibility that some in the church walked away. It grieved him to think that his investment in their lives was seed that might have fell on rocky soil. The parable of the soils, you probably know. Jesus gives the meaning to the seed that fell on rocky soil. What does he say? He says, the word was received with joy, but when trouble and persecution came, they fell away. Folks, that can happen. Someone's excited about the Lord. They're all excited about spiritual things. They're really getting in the groove of this, and and difficulty hits, and they just say, hang this. I don't want this. I'm done. Don't allow the enemy, to take advantage of your grief and suffering and pull you away. And this is what Paul is concerned about the church, which would feel like a tremendous loss to him if that was the case. And so he takes the opportunity in this letter to remind them of the nature of the trials. You notice the end of verse 3, he says, you know quite well that we were destined for trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you we'd be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. Reminds them. That suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. But he also knew the church needed help in dealing with the suffering. You see, when when trials come, when loss comes, when suffering comes, there's a temptation, is there not, to take a way out from the hardship through some temporary escape. It's while encountering trials that we are tempted to entertain questions that shake us to the core. You know what I'm talking about. Questions like, why in the world is this happening to me? Or, if God is so powerful and he's so loving, why isn't he stopping this? What have I done is a question we all have. What have I done to cause this? Where is God? And the truth is, church, suffering should not surprise us. How are you handling trials? Not only that, how can you help others handle suffering? See, it isn't only about getting ourselves over the finish line and ending well. We're to help others get to the finish line and to finish strong. Because it's all about people. Let it not be, church, let it not be out of sight, out of mind, until we meet again next Sunday. Adjust your priorities, church, to, and I speak to myself, to better reflect that life is about people, really not about my schedules. Though I, I, I need to keep them, I understand. But it's not about that, ultimately. And, and, and I remind you, church, push through those times you'd rather quit. There might be a plan B or C or D. Do you have, do we have a relentless commitment even when something doesn't go our way? Are you facing disappointment, experiencing loss, something blocking your progress forward? Don't fret when life looks different 
than you planned. In the book Alive, the author recounts a low point in Thomas Carlyle's life. It's about him that noticed the historian Carlyle had just spent two years writing a book on the French Revolution. These before the days you could save it to the clouds. He's writing it out. And on the day he finished his manuscript, he gave his only copy to his colleague, John Stuart Mill, to read and critique. Then the unthinkable occurred. Mill's servant inadvertently used Carlyle's manuscript as kindling to start a fire. And as Mill reported the devastating news, Carlyle's face paled. Two years of his life lost. Thousands of long, lonely hours spent writing had been wasted. He could not imagine ever writing that book again. And he lapsed into this deep depression. Then one day, while walking the city streets, Carlisle noticed a stone wall under construction, and he was kind of mesmerized by this wall. That tall, sweeping wall was being raised one brick at a time. It was a turning point for him, he says. If he wrote one page at a time, one day at a time, he could write the book again. And that's exactly what he did. You may be here today and you're facing some disappointment, you're facing some loss, you're facing some devastations and suffering of some kind, and, and, and all you can see is the wall, and not the individual bricks, but taken day by day, task by task, brick by brick, the load is manageable. And God's help comes day by day, because the God who has come near to you in Jesus Christ, that is the gospel, is near to you to embrace the suffering and lost. And as you move forward, don't let us stop you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words. We know they come from you. They're God-breathed. And as we try and figure out sometimes different words and what they mean and all of that, we know behind it is, a, is the perfect word that you've given to us that we just have to keep figuring out. What is it that you, you mean by this? What does it say to us? How are we to live this out in our lives? So God, I pray as we kind of put us all together this morning and as we're going to sing right now, that one thing we can remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. It belongs to you. Yeah, we're to do things. We're to fight it. But at the end of the day, it belongs to you. It is yours to fight. And maybe just submit to that and to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.